Welcome to the public rally. It's not likely the 2020 election will soon be forgotten. The impact of COVID-19 has disrupted every aspect of American life. Moreover, the presidential election has brought about its own set of potential norm erosions. To get an idea of the possible impact the 2020 election may have on America going forward, I'm joined by award-winning journalist Ray Suarez. From local affiliates to CNN to National Public Radio to the NewsHour to Al Jazeera, over the past several decades, Suarez has covered some of the nation's most important stories. He's joining us by phone from Montana. Ray Suarez, welcome to the Public Morality. Good to be with you, Byron. Uh, it, it seems over the years, whenever I've had you on, um, I began by having you offer a dis- distillation of some unprecedented uh, pol- social or political moment. We've talked about the press. We've talked about the Supreme Court. Uh, as one who uh, is not swayed by hyperbole, how concerned are you about the, the current Democratic guardrails that you've spent your entire career as a member of the press uh, upholding? Well, you know me, I'm not the hand-wringy type, but this is disturbing. I mean, you know, uh, I've covered elections since the first one I really covered as somebody with a press card in my pocket was the uh, Jimmy Carter election, which was also the first presidential election where I was legally able to vote. And, you know, you, you get used to certain conventions about how the whole thing goes down. And a lot of it works because, not because people are in love with the system, not because people are totally enamored of losing or anything like that, but they know that there's a risk involved, not only to themselves personally, but to the whole big machine, if they go too far outside the lane lines. And we are now at a point where... That idea seems to have been discarded in favor of what you can do is whatever you can plausibly get away with. The downside, you know, I'll take care of the downstream risks later, but right now, whatever I can get away with is what I can do. And that's a very disturbing moment. The sort of restraint that was built into both sides um, has been eroding. But now it is uh, paper thin, and you um, you see these conversations, and you talk to people yourself who are totally enamored of the idea that long-term minority rule is okay. When actually it would it would um, corrode the belief of the people in the system if minorities rule long term. It tells you something, that in all of our elections, the president who got less votes, the presidential candidate who got less votes, very rarely prevailed. Since 1876, it's only happened a couple of times. But now I'm seeing people who strut around and say, well, hey, it's the design of our system and the popular vote means nothing. And well, if if you can put together an electoral coalition that wins the electoral college and you don't win the vote, fine. And we are really at a moment 
where an in, what a, a group of people who view themselves as an endangered future minority are saying, hey, if what comes out of all of this is permanent minority rule, a small portion of Americans choosing a majority of the United States Senate, able to pass legislation at will, signed by a president who was elected by a minority of the voters, that's fine, as long as it's our people. And I think we're, we're playing with fire here. And some people are going to be very unhappy. <laughs> well, actually, listening to you, Ray, you actually sound like James Madison in, in Federalist 10 and, and his concern about factions. That, that, was what, that was what Madison was concerned about, what you just articulated. You know, if the design of the system, in its, in its ardor to protect minorities from the tyranny of the majority, also contains embedded embedded within it the possibility that every now and then someone who loses the popular vote can become president. That's okay. But if it happens election after election, that's not okay. And people who are talking about it in this blithe, carefree manner don't aren't taking into account that eventually majorities will have their way. And it may not be in a way that they're very happy with. You know, and, and there's, some, there's some inherent tensions in the 2030 and 2040 censuses showing us that a vast majority of the Senate will be elected by a small minority of the voters. That was always a possibility. But the growth of the super states and the stagnant populations of the smaller states mean that that proportion is going to, you know, 60-40, 65-35, we could probably handle that. 70-30, 70% of the Senate uh, representing 30% of the people, probably not a good idea long term. And that's what we're looking at. And we're going to have to have a conversation about it at some point, but nobody's in the mood, it seems, to have it right now. You, you you may have just summed up our entire conversation with your last statement that things we need to have a conversation about. No one's in the mood to have have it. Uh, as I recall, um, it was that attitude that, that that got us the Civil War. We don't have time. Let's have the Missouri Compromise. Let's have the Kansas Nebraska. We don't have time for these things. Then we have a Civil War. Then you have time for it, right? <laughs> right. Well, if you kick the can down the road long enough, eventually those inherent tensions get played out some other way that makes nobody happy. You know, one of the major differences since the last time we had you on, um, obviously, is the impact of, of COVID-19. So on a scale from 1 to 10, where is your concern that the election results will not become another crisis on what seems like a, 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 a crisis-weary nation? I worry that if the polls are right, that instead of simply accepting the verdict of the voters, the president may try tactics of obstruction and delay in order to buy time to create enough doubt in the electorate about the validity of the system that it causes far more destruction than, uh, than anybody's counting on. If you tell the 60 million or so people who are going to vote for the president 
that the whole thing is rigged and filled with cheating and illegality, um, you not only lose them for this November, but you lose their belief in the efficacy of their input as citizens. You uh, tear away at their belief that the system operates within certain tolerances, uh, always operates in a way that, uh, that you can count on. Now, I've seen some recent polling, and, and these are my words, that we see reports coming out of the Justice Department, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, and these reports that we, we, we used to take as gospel, we now look at with a jaundiced eye, and, 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 and those institutions have just totally lost public trust. Um, I mean, can that narrative change? How long would that, would that take? In your estimation. It didn't happen overnight, and fixing it isn't going to happen overnight either. There have been interests in this society in creating a populace where the trust in institutions is low. Look, those institutions, the academy, medicine, science, the legal system, judiciary, the media, they all have their faults, and they have all uh, had some things to apologize for over over recent decades but generally they operate in a way that leaves you better off for paying attention to them than you'd be without them oh and and the church as well broadly speaking capital T capital C and the loss of belief in the um, the validity of all these institutions has been called into question so much that nobody believes anything or anybody anymore. And that's a tough society to run. It's a tough society to be a leader in. It's a tough society to create common cause and common purpose in, in order to do something like fighting a pandemic. And we got the president who very much understands that temper of the times. So he, um, didn't wear a mask. Then when you'd call him on it, he'd say, yeah, I urge people to wear masks. But then he would make a point of not wearing one, leaving the, the society sort of on its heels about who's telling the truth. In April, he said everybody who needs a test in the United States can get one. It wasn't true in April. It wasn't true in May. It wasn't true in June even. Now it's true. But it was a problematic thing to have the chief executive of the United States saying, as if it's gospel truth, that everybody in the country who wants a test can get one. That kind of thing is not good for the society. Saying it's just like the flu when it's a deadly disease and you've been briefed on the fact that it's a deadly disease is not good for the country. But we're at a time where, you know, truth is whatever I want it to be. Truth is whatever you want it to be, and since there are no agreed-upon, shared, um, widely credible sources of valid truth, uh, everybody's sort of winging it, and that's where, that's where we're at now. We're in a society where everybody's winging it. I, I touched on this earlier, but the 21st century, in my view, is, is so far has been a century of crisis. I'm thinking 9-11 
subprime mortgage that, that led to the uh, Great Recession beginning in 2007, uh, obviously COVID-19 and all of its ramifications. In light of, of these in totality, talk to me about how this has impacted uh, journalism, which is also one of those institutions that no longer has the trust that it once had. A majority of Republicans believe that reporters make up stories. Make up stories. That would mean inventing people, inventing quotes, saying the things that aren't true are true. Believe me, it would be, in some ways, a lot easier. Instead of traveling to the four corners of the earth over the last 35 years, I could have just stayed in an office and made stuff up. But I didn't, and I couldn't, and it's ridiculous. But they believe it. That's a tough audience to talk to, where a large portion of the audience um, is in full doubt of what you say. Um, one night I, uh, during the confirmation um, hearings for Justice Alito, I did a report on the news hour, summing up the day's testimony and questioning from senators, went back to my desk. The phone was ringing on my desk. I picked it up, and it was a guy um, calling to complain about the story. I said, well, okay, tell me what your problem is. And he felt that I had um, misstated what that day's testimony was about. I said, well, you know, I'm trying to hit the major points, both in um, points of the law and also the drama, the high-stakes drama of a, of a Senate confirmation hearing. And, you know, there were six hours of testimony today. I had eight minutes of tape, so you can't get everything in there. But I, I, think, I think it was representative of the day's uh, proceedings. And he said, well, not really. And, you know, I don't trust you guys anymore. So I watched the whole thing myself today on C-SPAN. And I said, well, yeah, okay. And yes, watching six hours of hearings and my eight, minute, eight minutes of tape with talking at the top and talking at the bottom is unlikely to capture everything that happened in the six hours. But the whole reason my job exists is that you don't have to watch six hours of hearings in order to know what happened. You are single-handedly unraveling the whole reason why reporters, we are your proxies. We look at things, we observe events, we talk to people, and then we give you some um, representative sampling of an event so that you understand it as well. I said, so if you're, the whole idea is that you don't have to watch the six hours of hearings. I doubt you have the time to watch it, do it every day. But it, it taught me a, a lesson that there are now increasingly people who no longer have a deposit of trust where they will surrender a certain amount of that uh, first-person observation to a proxy, a reporter, who will go to a country, see an event, cover an election, interview a politician on their behalf, and then tell them what happened. Tell them enough that they can understand what happened. Men like that man uh, are now vastly numerous in the society and are ready to do stuff like watch six hours of hearings, which is frankly something you couldn't do before because there was no place it was on. But now uh, that 
in in the age of uh, 200 channel television and endless digital availability of images and information, everybody is sort of uh, fancying the idea that they can be their own reporter, which is okay. Uh, but there's stuff that I actually know how to do that they don't know how to do, and that's what keeps me. That's what keeps me in bread and butter so right, far. Right. I was gonna. I was about to say that, that there's only one way, Suarez. So let, let's not get carried away here. <laughs> uh, t- give me uh, from from your vast years of experience. Give me uh, your take on the future uh, of presidential debates. Uh, since you said you've started covering them in '76, uh, given the the last presidential debate, am I talking about the? Uh, the vice, the VP debate, but the last presidential debate. What's that trajectory on after watching that um, event? I think um, both sides are going to be tougher and less, less flexible in their negotiations around the terms of debates, and that will actually be the opposite direction from from which debates should be coming. So that lack of flexibility. That lack of interest in compromise uh, will make both sides stick to their guns in the belief that they can make nights like that other night between uh, Trump and Biden not happen anymore. From an excess of caution, they don't want their candidate to go through that. It means that we will have probably fewer debates, more structured, less free form. uh, And, you know, it's unfortunate but uh, everything has been politicized. Literally everything has been politicized. So, you know, a political event, like a debate, has to end up being uh, subject to the kind of wrestling match that actually has nothing to do with an exchange of ideas and policies in response to reporters' questions. It's it's been made into it's it's absorbed the values of showbiz. Um, the president went in the game plan. The vice president went in with a game plan, um, and they both are, some would argue, over prepared, prepared to a fairly well, ready with canned lines and canned responses to certain topics that come up. It's unfortunate. It's it's neutralizing the value of these things, except. Um, in the sense of soft value, uh, the things you can learn about who reacts under stress and the manner and stuff like that. But as far as finding out things about their political beliefs or their policy proposals or their ideas about how government should run, they're not very useful exercises anymore. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, you, just listening to you talk, you sort of raise a, a larger question. I mean, could, should we even call these events Debates. I mean, I'm speaking from the primaries to the presidential. What are the, are they debates or what are they? Well, the ones during the primary season, especially when the field is big, are really serial news conferences uh, where you ask a question and everybody answers the question, but they have to be so brief as to be almost ridiculous. You're asking about complex events and complex circumstances and saying, you have one minute. Well, that's, you know, some things can't really be adequately explained to a voter in a minute, and shouldn't be. Uh, and so, during these last two cycles, when we've had 
a huge Democratic field in 2020 and a huge Republican field in 2016. Um, those events were, you know, the, the real cornerstone impulse was to try to goad somebody into making a mistake that would make a great 15-second soundbite on that night's late local news or uh, the whole subsequent day's cable news. Uh, so, you know, they, they aren't really valuable events sometimes. I mean, the town hall ones can be interesting because um, you get a better feel for what people are wondering about. And sometimes the questions aren't as polished and sophisticated as an anger man question might be. Uh, but they show where the concerns of voters are. And because you can't show disrespect to a voter in the same way as you show disrespect to Chris Wallace or Susan Page, um, you actually have to be somewhat civil and answer like a human being. So the town halls um, are far more genteel events, usually. Uh, It looks like we're not going to have that one uh, on September 15th because the president is rejecting uh, the idea of uh, of doing it remotely. So uh, that, that'll be a loss. But many, many more nights like the one that we had uh, with the first presidential debate aren't going to be particularly useful if you are truly undecided about who you want to vote for. If you're just joining us, I'm uh, speaking with award-winning journalist Ray Suarez. Ray, I'm, you know, having covered a number of political uh, conventions, um, I'd like to get your take, uh, and, and I, I say this, I'm, I'm just, just provide the caveat, I'm not saying this from a political perspective, but, but one from, just from our constitutional values perspective. You, I want your take on President Trump's use of the South Lawn as the convention floor on the last night, and sh- is that something that should concern us going forward? Um, well, going forward, we'll see in many, many ways whether Trump was a one-off or whether he was somebody who was creating new models for presidential behavior. I mean, the, the South Lawn thing was an event created by the unusual circumstance of the pandemic so that there was no convention. Uh, we don't know, uh, you know, so a lot of presidents are actually reactions to the previous president. So we got a very buttoned-down moralist who said, I'll never lie to you, uh, in Jimmy Carter, in response, in backlash to Richard Nixon, who was lying to us all the time. Uh, we, uh, we may get a far more um, conventional presidency in reaction to Donald Trump. So when somebody is tempted to do some of the norm-breaking things that the current president did, they'll have to think hard about whether they want to walk in those footsteps. You know, we recently had uh, uh, David Frum on the show, and uh, he suggested that certain norms that you talked about in your last response need to be perhaps codified by law going forward. For instance, um, the president broke no law, but the vast sum of money that was raised for the uh, 2017 inaugural uh, inauguration, there's a huge gap of what was spent and what what remains, and no one seems to know where that 
money is, um, or like the president's taxes. Should a president uh, release his taxes before running a presidential candidate? So should these things be codified, or is that are we going too big brother on that? I don't. Uh, well, I'd I'd like to wait and see. Um, I'd want to see what what candidates in the next cycle or two do, and how they behave in response uh, to to some of these expectations that voters may have. You know, if if Donald Trump ends up in legal trouble after his presidency, who wants to be the next candidate who says, "Oh, well." I'm going to do what Trump did when I'm running for president. If things turn out that uh, that he remains in a kind of uh, legal jeopardy after his presidency, I'm not sure anybody's going to say, oh, yeah, I, I'm going to model my behavior in the White House. Donald Trump, we don't know what the Trump legacy will be. That will develop over time. And people will either want to run toward it because it works and because it was very popular among a certain pool of voters, or they're going to want to run away from it because it will be associated with um, aspects of becoming president and being president that they may not want to associate themselves with. A lot of these people who vie for high office also have one eye on history books. They have one eye on power and the governor's mansion or the White House or whatever, City Hall, they also have one eye on the history books, and it remains to be seen what kind of model Trump will offer to future presidents. You know, I always, uh, when my kids would complain to me about Donald Trump, I'd say, look, you know, there's, there's a lot of presidents who people don't remember, so we don't know whether, how people felt about them contemporary. Uh, we don't, you know, everybody says, oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. This is the worst guy who's ever been president. You know, who knows? <laughs> it's, it's a country with a long history and a lot of people who've had the office. And um, we just don't know yet how history will regard this presidency. And certainly uh, that verdict, we'll, we'll get some evidence on the verdict on November 3rd and November 4th as votes get counted. Uh, again, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, award-winning journalist Ray Suarez. Now, Ray, you've been kind enough to uh, call us from Montana. So what, what are you working on now? I'm working on a project for the American Communities Project, which is based at George Washington University, but has partnerships with the Wall Street Journal and MSNBC on uh, deaths of despair. That is the deaths of people long before their actuarial expectation of uh, lifespan, uh, mostly in their 40s and 50s, from uh, overuse of alcohol, from suicide, from accidental drug overdose. Uh, the award-winning, uh, the Nobel Prize-winning economist Angus Dayton and his wife Ann Case uh, came up with the term deaths of despair because these are men who are in really bad uh, emotional trouble and they decide taking their life in one way or another is better than actually being alive. And uh, Montana has had one of the highest suicide rates in the United States for the last century and has seen a skyrocketing in deaths of despair in recent years. So 
Uh, it's a multi-state project. Montana is just one of the states we'll be covering. Mm. And, and following on about that, um, uh, next week, we're, t- uh, we're taping this on, on October the 8th. Next week, you are uh, leading a free worldwide online class. Will you talk about that? Uh, uh, civil conversation in uncivil times. Well, I was contacted by the Episcopal Church, uh, of which I am a member, and they said, you know, you've been covering Washington for so long, and the, uh, the arguments are so hot and so vitriolic now. Can you do us a short course on how to, um, how to love your enemy, uh, how, how to have him not be your enemy, how to have conversations about fraught topics with people that you believe you disagree with? So I came up with some thoughts on how to do that, and uh, the course goes out through uh, Church Next and the Forward Movement to uh, the arms of the Church, and it was an interesting exercise, not something I've ever done before. Now, now, so anyone who wants to contact you, would they go to is it churchnext.com or .org? How, how, would, how would someone find that? Uh, I think uh, if they if they search Church Next and put in Suarez, it'll pop up. The course will pop up. Okay. Ray Suarez, I want to thank you again, sir, for, for, for joining us on the public rally and giving us some of your invaluable insights. Thank you so much, sir. Always a pleasure. Good to talk to you. The public rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us on the public morality, I'm Byron Williams.